0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're talking to George Monbiot about the future, about the environment, about how politics could be better and about Michael Gove. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. I spoke to George Monbiot when he was in Cambridge recently as part of an event called Imagine 2027, which is about trying to imagine a better politics in 10 years' time. We spoke just before he addressed a huge audience at Anglia Ruskin University, literally hundreds and hundreds of people. You can see the full version of his talk at the Imagine 2027 website, which is imagine2027.org.uk. And he answers a lot of questions too from all sorts of different people. We got to the heart of it in our conversation. And I began by asking him the straightforward question, why does he think politics will be better in 2027.
1: Political failure is at heart a failure of imagination. It's a failure to see where the cracks in the wall are. And what this series of talks is trying to do is to find where those cracks are, to identify exciting potential visions. Obviously, if we stick to the tracks we're on, we're in serious trouble for all sorts of reasons, um, environmental economic political none of it looks good at the moment but it's because we're stuck in the old ways we're stuck with the old stories and what we urgently need to do is to change those stories
0: so you wrote recently and I have a lot of sympathy with this I think we can both say this you didn't vote for Brexit I didn't vote for Brexit but one of the things that would make sense of Brexit for me is if it came with a lot of democratic reform in this country. So to, you know, take back control, whatever that means, the idea of a Brexit without that reform. And you said that, though you didn't vote for it, it is an opportunity for reform. That said, I can't see it. I mean, as things stand, we seem to be in a place, and if we're thinking not yet, 10 years ahead, even five years ahead, where it's entrenching some of the sort of stale and stuck features of our democratic politics and empowering executives.
1: It's a very dangerous moment with people like Liam Fox in government, who seems quite overtly to be happy to subvert Parliament, subvert the will of the people by trying to strike deals. His trade bill suggests there should be no parliamentary scrutiny of the trade deals that he strikes. He's quite happy to undermine our own regulatory standards, to supplant parliamentary control with these international trade bodies, which are composed of three corporate lawyers who can then decide that a company has a right to sue the government for passing laws which it doesn't like. Far from taking back control, if we follow the kind of Brexit that Fox and Gove and Johnson, and well, who knows what May wants, I don't think she knows what she wants, but that the hard Brexiteers want, then we're looking at a very dangerous shift back into extreme neoliberalism, which is in many ways what Brexit was trying to get away from. I mean, why so many people kicked against the system was because the system simply wasn't delivering for them. The problem with neoliberalism is it effectively makes the domain of politics itself illegitimate. It says issues should be resolved economically, not politically. The civic realm is not the realm in which decision making should take place. And when that happens, politics becomes irrelevant to people, it becomes the yabber of a remote elite six feet above their heads, a conversation that they can't join. And so given the opportunity to aim a kick at the whole system, people will take that, whether it's Brexit or whether it's Trump. And so paradoxically, this attempt to assail the system, which is no longer working, may entrench that system and make it far worse. But the hopeful sign, I guess, it's a sort of fairly etiolated kind of hope, is that The Brexit they envisage just can't possibly work. I mean, everything is so logistically flawed in in their view. Everything from getting the lorries through Dover to negotiating with the Good Friday Agreement, none of it works. So something has to break. It's, It's hard to see if there were any sensible opposition to that Brexit, which there isn't yet. It's hard to see how that can possibly be sustained. And I think what we desperately need to see is Labour getting its act together, is actually coming up with a clear strategy against hard Brexit, which then presents to the people something much more palatable than what we're being offered.
0: On the basic question of the constitutional architecture of this country, the way that democracy works, leaving aside some of the wider policy and real-life implications of this... I took one of the things that you were saying, that it was an opportunity to rethink some of the basic structures of democracy, including of representative democracy. And that's the bit that I share the view that probably the system that we have in democratic terms doesn't work. But it's really hard to see, given the kind of system it is, how it reforms itself. And we know that crises and disasters are the ways that democracies reform themselves. But this one doesn't look like the kind of event that widens those cracks so that people find a new way through. I mean, that's the bit that I'm sceptical about. It seems like it's more likely to lead people to feel trapped in this system than to give them an imagination of a way out. Well, of course, that's true, which is why we need this new
1: imaginative effort. And what I'm trying to do in Out of the Wreckage is to tell a new story. You know, it seems to me that there's been scarcely any political or religious transformations which haven't used a new story, but a new story of a particular kind, a story with a particular structure that I call the restoration story, which basically goes, uh, disorder afflicts the land caused by a powerful and nefarious group of people working against the interests of humanity, but the hero, who might be one person or a group of people or even an institution, confronts those powerful and nefarious forces, and against the odds overthrows them and restores orders of the land. It's the Lord of the Rings story, it's the an Narnia story, it's, it's a very powerful narrative structure, but it's just about any successful political transformation has had a story like that at the heart of it. And the problem we face at the moment is that we have no new story. You know, After the Great Depression and the massive disruption that resulted from it, Keynes sat down and basically wrote a new restoration story. Disorder flicks the land caused by the powerful and nefarious f- forces of the economic elite, who, by capturing almost the entire production of society and concentrating it into their own hands, cause mass debt, destitution, and unemployment. But the enabling state, the hero of the story, supported by working and middle class people, will confront that economic elite, against the odds, overthrow it and restore order to the land through the provision of robust public services, taxation, etc., allowing people to work once more and circulating money back into the economy. Strong restoration story. When Keynesianism ran into trouble in the 1970s, the neoliberals came forward with their restoration story, where... um, The land has been thrown into disorder caused by the powerful and nefarious forces of the collectivizing state, which by crushing individualism and limiting opportunity turns us all into the same drones of of the system and will lead inevitably to the totalitarianism of either Stalinism and Nazism, however benign it might appear in its current form as a New Deal or British welfare state. But the hero of the story, the freedom seeking entrepreneur, will confront those powerful and nefarious forces and overthrow them and restore order to the land through the free market. Both very powerful restoration stories. So when neoliberalism spectacularly falls apart in 2008, we come forward with nothing. No new story. The best people came up with was either, oh, we could have a slightly less virulent form of neoliberalism, or we could go back to Keynesianism. Social democracy. Well, you know, there's problems with this. First of all, it's very hard to go back in politics. One of the reasons it's very hard to go back is that during the first iteration, the opponents of the system work out how to destroy it. And they did so very successfully with Keynesianism, pulling down capital controls, fixed foreign exchange rates, destroying any hope of an international clearing union, balanced global trading system that Keynes proposed, all of which were essential to to make that system work. And they haven't forgotten how to do that. In fact, what we now call Keynesianism is a very diluted form of the system that that Keynes originally envisaged, and it doesn't fire people up, let alone being realistic, to try to go back to that. So if we are going to reset politics, which we urgently need to do, we need to do that by building it around a new political story.
0: To what extent do you think that representative democracy itself is the barrier in the way of the story that you want to tell? Because... You've written a lot about radical kinds of democracy, experiments in democracy, more direct democracy, going back to election by lots, the randomization of democracy and so on. But in the things that I've read uh, on this by you, you do always say that representative democracy has to remain at the heart of it. And that means elections, parliaments, political parties and so on. In 2018, is it possible that those things are the barriers in the way of the new story?
1: I think that a system that relies on representative democracy alone is a barrier definitely it has to be tempered it has to be tempered by forms of participatory democracy and there's some great examples Reykjavik for example um, has a a, um, this system whereby citizens can put forward ideas for improving the city other citizens then vote on those ideas they're then passed to the city council the, the more successful ones and the council then has an obligation either to accept them or to give a coherent reason why it's rejecting them. And as a result of this, something like two-thirds of the adult population of the city has participated in this, and it's been transformed. It's had really dramatic effects. Participatory budgeting started in Porto Alegre in southern Brazil, has spread to several hundred municipalities since then. And again, where it's been rolled out to incorporate the whole infrastructure budget has been absolutely spectacular in terms of how it's changed people's lives. If you look at Porto Alegre, you see massive improvements in sanitation, in clean water delivery, in primary health care, in nursery places, in infrastructure of all kinds. It's, and it's broken the power of the mafia, because you know the only power of the mafia was that they were delivering services that the state was failing to deliver. It's broken clientelism and corruption, and you end up with a completely different system. In fact, it seems absurd looking at that, that there should be any other system. Why shouldn't the people control the money which they are putting into the system in the form of tax? I mean, so successful has it been in Porto Alegre that people are doing something believed quite impossible in politics. have actually lobbied for their taxes to be raised <laughs> because they can see the point of spending tax money. Whereas when fat cats in government are stuffing it into all the wrong places to please their political donors... Obviously, it's much harder to see the point of your tax money being spent. So where participatory politics is allowed to temper representative politics, where it's allowed to moderate the decisions taken in their very crude form at an election, then I think it has a transformative role to play. I mean, it's absurd, the idea that we get to vote once every four or five years, and In that vote, we are deemed to grant a government a mandate to do whatever it wants across that period. Even if the vote is entirely dominated by one or two issues, economy or immigration, we are deemed to have voted for, say, airport expansion or a change to the North Sea fishing regime or all sorts of things which weren't even in the manifesto at all. Um, Of course we didn't vote for those things. Most people were completely unaware that those things were even on the table and the idea that we must be stuck with a system so crude that that one decision taken on a single day, largely on the basis of this lot aren't as bad as the other lot, allows a government to operate supposedly in the name of the people for the next few years. Is there a better way of ensuring that people lose faith in politics?
0: I guess the problem I have with that is that You seem to be saying two things, one of which is that we're tempering this thing, Mm. and the other is that we're transforming it. And you can imagine ways in which as you scale these experiments up, Mm. they don't temper this system, they get swallowed up by it. And if you look at British politics now, you can picture some of this working at the local level. Mm. It's quite hard to see it tempering... Westminster politics? Mm. Because it's so radical. I mean, as you described it, it actually produces a politics that looks completely different. Are we actually talking about tempering representative democracy? Or are you trying to replace it?
1: Well, there's a good question. And uh, I do. <laughs> it depends which day you ask me, really. Um, today. <laughs> yeah, okay. Today. I mean, the Swiss system is an interesting place to start, because there they have elections, and they have a very powerful system of participatory democracy through, through referenda. And those referendums are binding. You know, if you get the requisite number of signatures followed by the requisite number of votes, the government has to follow the will of the people on that. You can even, if you get enough signatures and votes, propose and secure a constitutional amendment. Now, I still think there has to be safeguards on that system. I think they're sort of fundamental human rights, you know, which the Supreme Court should be able to judge on, which you can't Dismiss you know, constitutional issues that so, some of them I think should be ring fenced, but others perhaps should be up for grabs. But it's a system which you can say it's created a stable system or, or a stale system in Switzerland. Uh, both of those are, are valid ways of looking at it. But there is much more of a sense, I believe, of political ownership there than there is here. Now, of course, you could take it further if you look at what's going on in Rojava, the um, Kurdish part of Syria where they've applied the ideas of Murray Bookchin, the US ecologist and anarchist, to create a fully participatory system where the primary political unit is the local assembly, which then devolves decisions upwards towards a federated structure. But that's where, in theory at least, power resides. And it's a very interesting experiment in being conducted in highly adverse conditions, of course, but definitely one to watch. I mean... So, yes, I I like it. I'm attracted by all of these things, but I see them as experiments and I see them as experiments from which we can learn and draw. And ideally, yeah, I would love to see us ending up more like Reykjavik or Porto Alegre. It would transform the system, but we have to, I believe we have to start with tempering representative democracy and then see where that takes us.
0: And, of course, one of the challenges is it's going to be quite hard to sell people in this country on the idea that either Switzerland or the Kurdish part of Syria is a realistic experiment for them.
1: Yes, maybe Reykjavik is, is perhaps going to feel a bit closer to home in, the, in that respect because you know, there you have a ordinary modern European democracy In Iceland. And and recently bankrupt. And recently bankrupt, but then we we weren't that far off ourselves. Um, You know, we're not a million miles from them. Where, you know, this really exciting thing is happening in the capital city where most of the people in that country live. That doesn't seem a million miles away, nor does the Constitutional Convention in Ireland, which um, has led to some very interesting moves, like the referendum on civil unions and gay marriage. I don't think, though we are a sclerotised nation in many ways, I don't think we are innately averse to these changes. It's what holds us back above all is the stranglehold of the billionaire press and the House of Lords, the donor system, the political donor system, which ensures that particularly the Conservatives are basically doing what big money wants rather than what most of the people in the country might want. But we have an opposition which is potentially placed to institute major changes now.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you think we have an opposition that's potentially placed to institute major constitutional changes?
1: Well, the good thing about Labour is they are currently seeking new ideas in an active fashion. Labour in the past has sometimes been quite frightened of new ideas and um, has sort of been very keen to cling to old ones. But what I see at the moment is a lot of senior figures going out there and deliberately meeting as many challenging voices as they can to come up with new constitutional ideas, new political ideas, new economic ideas, new environmental ideas. I've had some of these discussions myself, attending a lot of meetings with people who don't necessarily agree with them in order just to harvest ways forward. Because I think there is a recognition that the manifesto at the last election was, by comparison to what had gone before, quite radical. It was also quite backward-looking and old-fashioned. It was from 1970s Keynesianism, really. And that they need to move beyond that. That seems to come across very clearly from people like John and John, John Trickett, that actually it's not enough. They, they need to go further. So I think there's everything to play for there.
0: In your writing, and it touches on what we've just been talking about, you cover an amazing range of scales. Mm -hmm. You've been writing recently about Froome in Somerset and an experiment in a new kind of community living. And in other things that you write, you write on a planetary scale almost a cosmic scale. I was reading something you wrote recently about, I think you call it cognitive history. Maybe yes, it is yes, called cognitive yes. history. Maybe yes. I should know that that's what it's <laughs> called. But it's sort of, I think of it as sort of closer to a register of someone like Yuval Harari, which is thinking about, as it were, how we think of, as a species and how that's shaped over millennia. You can tell me I'm wrong about this. You seem like someone who's an optimist at the local level and a pessimist at the, as we scale up. Is that fair?
1: I think I would divide it differently, that I'm pessimistic about what we do and optimistic about what we are. The project before last I did, bizarrely, was an album called Breaking the Spell of Loneliness. I'd written this article about what I call the Age of Loneliness, which went viral, and had several publishers say, oh, would you write a book about this? I thought, oh, yeah, great. Sit so on my ass for three years writing a book about loneliness. What's the second prize? So, but then I thought, an album, this is the answer. So I teamed up with a great musician, Ewan McLennan, and um, we made this concept album, and we toured it around and got people together and turned the gigs into parties, and we had a great time. But while researching it, we wanted to know why it was that people feel loneliness so so badly, why it hurts us so much, psychologically and physically actually, has major physical impacts. Why do we need to be with other people to this extent? So we did a lot of reading on human nature. We read loads in neuroscience in psychology and anthropology and evolutionary biology. And again and again, we kept coming across these papers. Experimental papers, surveys, all sorts of interesting ways of addressing the issue, showing that human beings, in the words of a paper in Frontiers in Psychology, are spectacularly unusual by comparison to other animals through our altruism. We are way off the scale in the animal kingdom in terms of our altruism. They think, oh, well, this can't be right. Look at what we do. Look at these, you know, look at these terrible things you see on the news every day. But actually that's that's what our leaders do, who turn out often to have a very different psychological profile to the majority of the population. It's what you see on the news, which of course deliberately selects the bad things that people do, because if it bleeds, it leads. But actually, our daily lives, we do not live like that. We are fundamentally altruistic. And while we've all got some selfishness and greed in us, they're down the scale, whereas issues like benevolence, altruism, empathy, community feeling are the dominant values that the great majority of people hold. And yet we are effectively a society of altruists governed by selfish people. And in that, I see hope. my first thought, on reading this stuff was, well, I was furious because I thought we've been lied to all this time because the neoliberals believe that selfishness and greed are our fundamental characteristics and that these are good things and they should be encouraged because that allows some people to become very rich and that wealth trickles down to enrich everyone. We know how well that works. But then a second thought was, well, we can build a politics on this. You know, if it's true that we're fundamentally altruistic and empathetic, well, then let's build our politics around that notion. And so the idea is now for me that We are driven to do really bad things, often by the political environment, by the economic environment, terrible things to each other, terrible things to the living planet. But actually that's not reflective of who we are. It might be reflective of what we do, it's not reflective of who we are. And if we can create the political environment which encourages the better side of our nature, then that side of our nature will come to dominate. And there's some very interesting psychological research arising from the social psychology of people like Shalom Schwartz and Tim Kasser, summarised by the Common Cause Foundation, which um, shows that if you are in a political environment that tells you your role is to fight like stray dogs over a dustbin and if you don't succeed in that fight you will die in a ditch and you deserve to die in a ditch, people tend to respond with far more selfish behaviour than in if they're in a political environment which says you will be looked after, you deserve to be looked after, society should care for its members, you are a caring member of society, then people respond in kind.
0: But does that altruism extend to nature? I mean, that's one of the questions here. I mean, there is a lot of work that shows that human beings do respond to other human beings in ways that are broadly benevolent, particularly when they feel attachment and community and so on. But that cognitive history story that you're also writing about suggests that for two, three more thousand years we have been detaching ourselves from the natural environment and actually our human sympathies do not extend beyond the people that we might live with or feel that we share things with. I mean isn't there a tension there?
1: This is just in quite recent history. I mean I know a few thousand years might not sound very recent history but in the long sweep of human evolution and human history it's, it's not very long and it is it is a peculiarity. It's a peculiarity which really arose in southeastern Europe and in India, driven by the sort of proto-Indo-Europeans who came from the steppes, who had this very sort of dualistic notion, dualistic cognition, this idea that we stand apart from the natural world and it was sort of enhanced by plato's substance dualism which then found its way into christian notions which then in turn found their way into modern scientific cognition you know descartes all he did really was to substitute soul for mind and say my mind stands apart from the world rather than my soul stands apart from the world and you know, in all these cases the material world of seeing as was seen as dross which we have to transcend but You go back further in history and the great majority of people and the hunter-gatherers who are common ancestors everywhere, they had a very strong relationship to the natural world. Um, Not always a constructive one, of course, they wiped out the megafauna almost everywhere, but there was a strong belief that they were part of the world. A powerful notion throughout hunter-gatherer societies is that the, the earth is our mother and that we are both cared for and have a duty of care towards that earth and that we are part of a living system, that the earth and its systems are seen as being alive, and we belong to that system. We don't transcend it, but we are embedded within it. That's a far more widespread notion, or it was. And then, of course, in Chinese thought, particularly in Neo-Confucianism, you have the idea of seeking harmony with each other and with the natural world. There's no notion of trying to remove ourselves from it or transcend it. But you are constantly trying to seek a balance with the world, with the material world that surrounds you. And the Tao is in everything. The Tao is in you. The Tao is in your bodily functions. The Tao is in the ground on which you walk, in the plants that are growing from that ground. And your aim is to be in harmony with the Tao. So it's just a particular form of cognition especially in in the West, but also it arose separately to some extent in India. But it's a particular dualistic form of cognition which has driven us into that peculiar mindset that sets us against the material world, particularly the living world. We don't have to be like that, as Jeremy Lent shows in his book The Patterning Instinct. We can draw on on more useful forms of cognition and develop more useful forms of cognition and develop new cognitive pathways which allow us to engage with the living world in different ways.
0: I'm going to ask two more questions, and one's going to be big and one's going to be small. So the big one coming out of that, do we have enough time? I mean, so two, 3,000 years in the sweep of human history is not a lot, but looking back and looking forward are completely different time frames. Yeah. It's quite hard to look forward 100 years. I mean, I think it's almost impossible at the moment to look forward 100 years. If this is about cognition. A hundred years isn't enough.
1: That would be the case if our task was to change human nature, but I believe our task is to reveal human nature. Because if it's true, as all these papers seem to suggest, that we are predominantly altruistic and empathetic, then we have to bring that to the fore rather than saying, right, let's get rid of human nature and replace it with something else. It's actually let's allow human nature to come forward having been suppressed by a political environment which is not conducive to it however of course you're right we're really up against it I mean the environmental time frame is horrendous climate breakdown is what I call it because climate change is like calling an invading army unexpected visitors it's such a ridiculously neutral term for the existential crisis we face the ecological cleansing of land and sea by the food industry soil erosion I mean there's so much it's happening so quickly the loss of fresh water we're in big, big trouble and we have to turn things around as quickly as possible. So, yeah, I mean, it's this is why I say I'm pessimistic about what we do because it begins to look less feasible. I'm not giving up. I think it's still worth throwing everything we've got at this, including developing this new political story, creating a political environment which allows us to discuss this stuff and act on it, which at the moment we don't have at all. All that is worth doing, but the longer we leave it, And the the further we allow it to go, the harder a task
0: it seems. My last question is a screeching change of tone. Have you been discombobulated at all by Michael Gove as Environment Secretary?
1: Yeah, yeah, no. um, He called me in soon after he got the job to talk about all the things I was most interested in. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to pass that up. So I went in and I was pretty hostile to the guy, particularly from education and I was really surprised. I mean, for a start, he was very well informed, very smart, he completely mastered his brief. He could quote great chunks of important stuff to me. Um, and he seemed to just latch onto everything I said, and it sounded great, and you know, this rhetoric's been fantastic. Then I read the 25-year environment plan, and I thought, oh, so that's what's going on. So basically, the same rhetoric's in the 25-year environment plan, and it all sounds great, but there's not a single firm policy in there to implement any of that rhetoric at all. And I think the thing is with Gove, you know, he he genuinely gets it, he understands it, he knows what needs to be done, but he's on this piece of elastic which is called deregulation. And he'll sort of walk off in the direction of what needs to be done and the elastic will stretch and stretch and suddenly go, bing, wait a minute, I'm against regulation, we can't do any of that. And that's the fundamental problem, you know, that the Conservatives stand for slashing what they call red tape, which is what I call public protection. And nowhere is that more obvious than in the area of environment. So Gove says, we've got to conserve the soil, we've got to keep the soil on the land. Yeah, absolutely, we've got to keep the soil on the land. So you read the 25-year environment plan, we've got to keep the soil on the land, great. So, yeah, well, that's what we've got to do. So how are you going to do it? How are you going to keep the soil in the land? Where's the regulations to prevent maize farmers and other people just stripping it, contract farming, allowing all the soil to be stripped off the land at phenomenal speed, which it is at the moment, which is why the Food and Agriculture Organization says we've got 60 years of harvest left at current rates of soil loss. Where's the legislation? Where are the proposals? Where are the regulations? They're not there at all. And this is you know, the problem you bump up against with neoliberal politics. That Even when they get it, even when they see what the problem is, the doctrine tells them the state cannot govern, the government should not govern, the state should be shrunk, whatever the need for state involvement. They cannot be deregist, and as a result, they will do nothing.
0: Does your faith in the capacity of human beings to change and the better part of human beings to come out extend to... Someone like Michael Gove? I mean, do you think, again, we're talking about timeframes, we're talking about electoral cycles and everything else, but if he half gets it, is that the absolute limit of it, or do you think he could three-quarters get it?
1: I think we need a change of government.
0: If you'd like to hear the interview we recorded with Michael Gove, we will tweet the link at tppodcast underscore, and you can find it there. George Monbiot was also in Cambridge to talk to Harjun Chang, and we have an interview with Harjun from last year july last year you can hear that also if you follow the link on twitter next week we're going to be talking to bridget kendall the former bbc correspondent in moscow about russia about putin about spies about what trump is up to do join us for that my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics